Good morning. It's uh, great to be with you all this morning. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I love your worship. Um, if you looked at our church and then your church, you would think one of us copied the other, but it's not true. We just kind of do the same thing together, um, and it's beautiful. And um, it rarely brings me to tears to worship, but it has today. And um, yeah, partly because of this passage that we're looking at, um, you, uh, your church and our church are both looking at the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I have absolutely loved. And as we have seen from the beginning, there's a theme of the secret rescue plan of God. Uh, I'm sure you've been using that same language. And today is where the rescue kind of, you could say, finally happens. Now, last week um, was Gethsemane, where uh, he was crying, sweating, uh, drops of blood. He was in turmoil. Um, and he turned his face towards the cross at that point, which is why he was so filled with dark emotions. And um, I thought of the way that in the Lord of the Rings, if you know those books, there's a time where Frodo and Sam, they turn towards uh, Mordor, and they know they're now on the path. And it, took ter- it, it brought them to turmoil to turn that direction, but now their face is set like flint towards Mordor. And that's the way Jesus was last week. And now we're at the precipice of Mount Doom where... Um, the real victory is about to take place. And if you, if you know the books, you know there's a surprise that suddenly happens where out of sure defeat, uh, victory comes. And it's the same way with the cross, that where it looks like all is lost, uh, right at the precipice of Mount Doom, a second later, the battle is won, which is part of the genius of God, the way he wins this battle. Um, the whole book has been a battle between the empire and the kingdom, uh, the, the world of domination of the empire and the world of dominion of the kingdom. Um, and there is a great battle. And that's one of the first things that um, a Christian needs to believe. Uh, and someone who, if you're not a believer, that's one of the things you need to know that we believe as Christians is that we're actually in a, in a universe in which there's this cosmic battle between um, what you might call the empire and the kingdom. Uh, you could say good and evil, although people in the kingdom are also full of sin. So it's dangerous to call it that, but certainly a group of people who are captive to the evil one, the world of domination, and then the group of people that Jesus is liberating uh, to bring into a world of dominion, the kind of dominion of the humble dominion of Adam and Eve in the garden. And the battle was won between these two forces when the sun stopped shining. That's the title of this um, particular chapter in the Storybook Bible, the, the sun stopped shining. And the picture of Jesus in this um, is one of my favorites in the whole Storybook Bible. If you have one, I encourage you to turn there. Just his face uh, on the cross, I'm looking at it right now, and um, just the way there's bruises, there's scars, um, and it's just his eyes, the way they're turned down, and his mouth, and there's a tear coming out of one eye. And um, this is where the victory was won when he did that on the cross for us. So I want to look at the great battle first, because you see it come to a head uh, in this passage. You see the light and the dark as strongly as you ever see it. And then I want to look at the great victory and how he won that battle, which uh, going back to Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote those books, called it a, a U catastrophe because it's like a, in the shape of a U that right when everything seems lost, all of a sudden from there, this sudden victory, which you see that as a pattern in a Christian life uh, again and again and again. This what uh, looks like a catastrophe is suddenly... Uh, becomes a catastrophe and uh, goes into victory. So first, the great battle. 
Uh, they brought him, verse 22, this is Mark 15, 22, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. I mean, the name itself is eerie, Golgotha. I've always thought that. Um, and it's supposed to be eerie because it means a hill that is shaped like a human skull. That's what it looks like. And it was not enough for the empire, the Roman Empire. This is true of all empires, but it's not enough to just delete people. It's not enough for them to get rid of anyone who opposes them. They've got to actually um, have these skulls and spectacles. It's like public psychological warfare. This Golgotha was on a place where when people came into Jerusalem, they could see clearly the people on the crosses, uh, the crucifixes that were up there, so that they would know you don't mess with Rome. You don't mess with the, the domination system, that if you do, you'll be not only killed, but you will be uh, humiliated. It was almost as bad that their body was exposed to the birds uh, as it was that they died. So it's a kind of, a, again, a public psychological warfare. The storybook Bible says this, um, so you're a king, are you? The Roman soldiers jeered. Then you'll need a crown and a robe. It's a form of mockery. To, he's claimed to be the king, and now they're putting this fake crown and this robe on him as they beat him. So it had to be torture in front of crowds. You've got in verse 29, uh, those who passed by, just total strangers, were deriding him, were mocking him. Notice all the language of the verbal um, violence in this passage. The chief priests and the scribes in verse 31 were also uh, joining in. They mocked him to one another, which he could overhear. And then the bystanders, so you have the people passing by Jerusalem, you have the chief priests and scribes, even the two people who were being crucified mocked him. And then in verse 35, just random bystanders were also uh, mocking him. Um, and so, you know, people uh, have always loved public executions. We don't do this in America because the ethics of Jesus have largely conquered in many ways, but... Uh, because of the revolution that Jesus started, we don't do this anymore in America, thank God. But uh, in the French Revolution, which was the Age of Enlightenment, um, you know, they had the largest public square in Paris was full of guillotines. And many, many people would come out and watch these executions. And that happened even in America and England uh, not long ago. So uh, human, humans have always kind of gotten a thrill out of these things. This is, I'm describing the empire here. I'm describing uh, the, the cosmic powers of evil. This is what is true of the world we live in, that we, um, thousands of people hurling insults on the kindest, most patient man who ever lived. In the uh, line, The Wish in the Wardrobe, as a child, I read this uh, book, Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Um, it's really the the first one he wrote, and in, in many ways the greatest, I think, of the Narnia Chronicles. And I read this as a child. My family didn't believe. I didn't know anything about the story of Christ. But I did know that this regal king, this beautiful lion who had loved people, who was so powerful and strong, that when those goblins and those ghouls and all of the minions of the white witch, when they uh, taunted him, and he let them do it, and they, uh, they tied him up with ropes, and they would poke at him, and kind of get close and poke him and then run away. They shaved him, his mane, this beautiful mane. They spit on him, and they brought him to the stone table where he was executed. And I just knew as a child, 
Uh, there was something horrific about that and something real about that. So the battle lines are very clear in this story. You have, uh, you have uh, in this corner, you have the people who are mocking him, uh, wagging their heads, mocking, reviling. And then in this corner, you have the one who is called uh, the Christ, the King of Israel, verse 32. And uh, it's very clear that there are two sides. And there is no middle ground. Either you're for him or against him. There is no middle ground. And uh, the shocking claim of Scripture is that we are naturally on this side. We, we are on the side of the empire. And that um, it is in your heart somewhere uh, that you would taunt and mock and jeer. And so often we think that humans are just born kind of naturally on the side of the kingdom um, and that we're uh, born good, uh, we're born with uh, innocence, and that's not the claim of the Scripture. The, the claim of the Scripture is that you would not rush out out of the crowd to give him a hug when everybody else is laughing at him, that you would also be there somewhere, uh, that there is something in you that um, has pledged allegiance to the emperor. Uh, I think about in Star Wars, the Emperor Palpatine and how uh, the stormtroopers have all pledged allegiance. And to join in the kingdom, to, to, to flip sides, to join the resistance movement against the empire, uh, you have to make an act of the will. No one is born naturally just on the side of the rebel alliance, and he fights like crazy against the emperor because he knew what it was like to be a stormtrooper. Uh, that's what it's like. That a, uh, someone who is a Christian has changed sides. Now, you could have grown up in the church, and this is still true. There's still something inside of you uh, that you have to fight your whole life against which is that uh, the, the domination. We all have to switch allegiances. And uh, in verse 39 is this beautiful picture of someone who is switching allegiances. This is the first guy in the Gospel of Mark that actually gets it. Nobody has actually claimed yet that he was a son of God. The disciples are pretty clueless. Chief priests and the scribes hate him. And here is a man who is uh, at the heart of the domination system of the empire uh, this man is the one who carries out the, the will of Rome, the centurions, that's what they were. And here's a centurion in verse 39, the stormtrooper of the empire, and he sees the way that Jesus dies, the true king, not Caesar, but the true king. And the way he dies, the way he breathes his last, causes this em empire soldier to say, now truly this man, not Caesar, but this man is the son of God. And uh, that's, that's treachery. Because Caesar was the one who called himself the son of God. But our passion for the king, I mean, I, I would love to know more about that centurion story. How did that centurion from that point on fight for the king? I mean, surely he did. At, maybe as a centurion still. I imagine as a centurion still. But he, his passion for the king of kings uh, would have been enormous. And I would love to see the way his life turned out. Um, going back to the Narnia Chronicles, Edmund, um, Edmund is the the child of the, the brothers and sisters, um, the Pevensey kids. Edmund is the one who betrays Aslan. When he comes into Narnia, he joins the White Witch. Uh, he joins her schemes uh, to destroy Aslan. Um, and uh, he later repents of that because he sees what his decision did to Aslan, which put him on the stone table to be killed. And, uh, and he later repents with bitter tears for what he did. And his passion to fight for the side of Aslan is enormous. It's, it's stronger than any of the other kids. Uh, he's called Edmund the Just uh, because of 
the way he switched allegiances from the empire to the kingdom. So um, the question I think we have to ask ourselves is what is our, what is our level of passion? Um, wh- where do, do we have, do we um, bear the shame of the king of kings the way that uh, Simon of Cyrene did? This man was African. Uh, he was um, part of the colonies of Rome, the enslaved people. This would, Simon would have been these, one of these people. Uh, he was from northern Africa. And they compel him in verse 21 to carry the cross. And then we later know that his sons became Christians. And, and so he probably became a Christian because he, he was willing to bear the shame and to carry that cross of Christ, even though at the time he had to, he was compelled to, but he, um, he carries the cross and bears the shame. And, uh, and yet we expect to be respected oftentimes as Christians. And we, um, we fight with swords oftentimes. And we want political and cultural influence. And um, Jesus said, put away the sword. That's not how you fight. You fight by suffering with me. You fight by joining with me and bearing the shame. I became a Christian in 1991. And when I became a Christian, it didn't really cost that much to change sides. At that point in our country's history, pledging allegiance to Jesus was kind of like being a good American, especially in the South. And so it didn't cost me much. But that is rapidly changing, and I'm not sad about it because I think it highlights, A, there is a battle, which I didn't really know that. And a lot of the passages about suffering with Christ didn't make any sense to me when I first became a Christian. But now it's pretty clear there is a battle, and the church uh, seems to be losing. It's not, but it seems to be where we are all around us. Uh, And that we must fight by suffering with him, suffering as he did. Uh, Revelation 12, 11 says that the saints conquered the dragon, that's the emperor of emperors, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So we, we conquer by suffering in love the way the king did. That's the battle. That's the battle. And uh, we have to all, again, today make a just self-conscious choice. Yes, I am on the side of the king. Or not. Or not. And if not, then the call is come and join the king in uh, bringing dominion to the earth instead of domination. So that's the first point, the battle. The second point is the victory. And uh, it it gets me every time I think about it, the way he did this. Um, In verse 26, uh, the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And those are cruel and sarcastic words meant to demoralize him by Rome, uh, by Pilate. He was mocking him because Jesus had claimed to be the king of the Jews in front of Pilate, and Pilate uh, was mocking him here. Uh, This man was the king of the Jews. I mean, the king of the Jews on a cross, how ridiculous. It was a form of mockery and sarcasm. They were weaponized to humiliate. The story of the Bible says the soldiers made a sign that said, Our king, and nailed it to a wooden cross, which Jesus carried up the hill on his back. And obviously they were trying to mock him, but here's the thing about it. He was the king. They were actually proclaiming uh, that he was the king. And we still today uh, know that cross as his symbol of kingship. And so although they were mocking him, they were actually proclaiming his victory. And um, this is the thing about his victory. His victory is so masterful that it actually contains and swallows up all the domination and the violence within itself. It overcomes everything that tries to happen to it. It just sweeps it into its victory. 
Um, as Paul said, uh, we are more than conquerors. That meant we don't just conquer evil, we, the evil becomes part of our conquering. That we conquer the evil by absorbing the evil and then turning it into gold, into good. God takes everything, the worst thing that's ever happened to you, all of our foolishness, all of our bad decisions, all of our mistakes, and he uses it to save us, to bring us farther in. Romans 8.28, there's a reason this is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. There's a reason this is the favorite passage of many Christians. He says, God works all things together for our good. That doesn't mean that everything, all the sin, all the evil come from God. That's not something he likes. It's opposed to him. He hates evil. But he, he uses, all, he works all things together for our good, for those who believe and are called according to his purposes. And I mean, how many times has this happened in your life where God takes the worst thing that happened to you and uses it for gold? Very, very uh, small example. I was a very young, inexperienced church planner, and I sent out an email to the people who were going to my church, and I, I, was, in a, I was at St. Francis Springs Center, so I was by myself kind of in a monastery, and I sent out an email to everybody on the leadership team, and I said, I have this great idea. We are moving out and planting a church. And, of course, uh, it was a terrible idea. It was a terrible meeting. Um, they were all confused and frustrated, and as a result... Um, God has used my foolishness in that meeting and uh, in that email to make me so much more wise. It's completely backfired on the empire because um, what could have destroyed our church, God used to make me much more careful about going very slowly, communicating well, being measured, being circumspect. It's caused me to be a lot more humble. And um, that's just a very small example compared to... um, other things that have happened to me where really deep, deep darkness has come into my life, our life. Uh, nothing was working. Um, and I remember my counselor saying, uh, Satan, Ben, Satan is going to regret everything he's tried to done uh, to hurt you. Everything he's ever done to try to hurt you, he will regret bitterly because God is going to turn all of that against evil, and he will use that. And my counselor said, your greatest spiritual gift comes out of your greatest suffering. And, you know, my, uh, some of my greatest suffering happened in high school when I um, was just uh, felt uh, so ashamed and alone and um, completely unable to uh, speak in front of class. I had no ability to get up in front of class and speak. And um, I hated Christians. Uh, I was very opposed to Christianity. And I feel like God has just used uh, these parts of my story to bring... Uh, to, to become what is my spiritual gift, um, to preach. And uh, hopefully to preach uh, without becoming proud, because I don't think I could ever be proud, given what happened to me in high school and where he's brought me. Satan will regret everything he's ever done to try to harm you. That's just a promise of Scripture. I mean, he, these enemies certainly regretted crucifying Jesus. Can, these poor chief priests and scribes, can you imagine how much easier their life would have been if they had not crucified him? And the Roman Empire basically uh, sowed the seed of its undoing because 300 years later, the Roman Empire is taken over by this man, the King of Kings. Um, Basically, uh, by taking his life, by destroying him, they destroy themselves. Uh, It says in verse 31, the chief priests and scribes mocked him to one another, and they said, "He, 
he saved others. He cannot save himself. And again, they're proclaiming unwittingly the victory. Yes, he did save others by not saving himself, by hanging on that cross. As one song says, it wasn't the nails that kept him there. It was his love. He could have come down. He didn't. He, he cried aloud in verse 34, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's certainly not saving yourself. It's the opposite of that. He, he was as lost as any human being could ever have been. The, the most miserable, lost, uh, God-forsaken human being, uh, not even close to what he was experiencing at that moment. And um, the Storbuck Bible, uh, she says this, Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky, Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. And so whatever you've been through, whatever any human being has been through, he, he goes below that. He takes all of our experience of being forsaken by God, and he bears it, and he takes it. So he would always be there with you when you feel God forsaken. The uh, creed, the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. And um, scholars debate what that means. He descended into hell. What does that mean? When did he go into hell? Uh, I think, along with some other scholars, um, that the, the three hours of darkness from noon till three when the sun stopped shining, that that was hell. That um, if hell is the absence of God, the complete absence of God, outer darkness, um, that's where he was. Again, the story of the Bible says, Though it was midday, the sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. Rocks split in two. It seemed like the whole world was breaking. So three long hours of hell. The longest hours. And in that time, he is just bearing all the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5.21, it says that Jesus, uh, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin. He literally became the embodiment of sin. I think of like a huge iron cauldron as big as the Son of God, had to be as big as the Son of God. And into that big, huge iron cauldron, all of our sin is poured in. The Father pours in all the vile grotesqueness of our lust and our envy and our bitterness and our violence, just pours it into this cauldron. And then uh, he takes that cauldron and he hurls it into the sea as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. The full force of the storm of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down on his own son. That's the storybook Bible. The full force of God's storm of fierce anger at sin. He had to do something about sin. And it all came down on his son, not his people. It was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy his children, whose hearts were filled with sin. I, uh, from the first time I saw, um, started reading the Harry Potter books, I knew there was something up with J.K. Rowling, that she has some, obviously some kind of Christian vision in her books. And apparently she wrote the la she knew the last book when she started the first book. She knew exactly how it was going to end. And the more I read about her, sure enough, she, she is a believer. Um, she's a different kind of believer than I am, but she's a believer. And um, when Voldemort 
proclaims the killing curse on Harry with the Elder Wand. It's incredible the way they film this, where he's got Voldemort over here and Harry over here, and he, he fires, and then the, the green light comes out. And um, he says, the boy who lived has come to die. And he's strutting around back in Hogwarts with his cronies laughing, and he's saying, Potter is dead. And he's so sure of his victory. And at that very moment is when he realizes that all is lost. Because he's actually done the very thing that undid him. That in, in doing what he did to Harry, he has completely fallen himself. He's destroyed himself. And that's exactly what happened where Satan is strutting around and boasting the emperor, thinking he'd won the victory. But then to his horror, uh, he realizes uh, that Jesus shouts in a loud voice, it is finished. And it was. He had done it. Jesus had rescued the whole world. That at the very moment that Satan thought he had won the victory, he had completely lost the victory. And God had won. And God had used the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world to bring about the greatest good in the history of the world. Amen? Father, we praise you that um, that uh, though we go out sowing tears, uh, we return with shouts of joy, though there is weeping in the evening, there is joy in the morning, that um, this light and momentary affliction is actually preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And though uh, now we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him, and our suffering will be our glory. We praise you, Lord, that as we follow the King of Kings, just as his suffering produced his greatest glory, so all our um, greatest pain and hurt will be used uh, to make us absolutely beautiful and gorgeous people who reign with Christ forever. We praise you that you're doing this right now in all of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.